Hello, and thank you for listening to a live recording of the History of World War II podcast, episode 187. With us today is writer Scott Miller as we discuss his latest book, Agent 110, an American spy master and the German resistance in World War II. Scott Miller is a former correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, and his first book, The President and the Assassin, McKinley, Terror, and Empire at the Dawn of the American Century, was a Newsweek must-read summer selection. Mr. Miller spent nearly two decades in Asia and Europe, reporting from more than 25 countries. This book, Agent 110, covers the secret and suspenseful account of how OSS spymaster Alan Dulles led a network of Germans conspiring to assassinate Hitler and negotiate surrender to bring about the end of World War II before the Soviets advance. So, Mr. Miller, thank you very much for being with us today. I certainly appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So just to start off, to let all the, the readers know right off the bat, this was an absolute corker of a read. Uh, I was able to, even after all these years of reading stuff about World War II since I was 12 years old, I was able to learn a lot. And that's always nice to turn a page and go, I didn't know that. So that, that's, that's great. I think at some point in the book, you're throwing in uh, Julia, Julia Childs, Lenin, and even Carl Jung at some point. So it was really nice to get some of these... Um, some of these smaller stories in the much larger story that is the OSS. I enjoyed that a lot. That's one of the things I really enjoyed about writing the book was, and it surprised me, was just the, the great supporting cast of characters of really unlikely people. Um, that made it a lot of fun to work on. And the, and the best part for me, and everybody out there who's thinking about getting this book should absolutely know, I love the, 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 the focus of the book because as the story of World War II winds down, and we all know the, the broad strokes of World War II, the drama and the tension in the book is actually building up, driving me crazy at the end because you don't know who you can trust, you don't know who's telling the truth, you don't know what their ultimate goal is, and so the drama and the tension just build up right up to the end, and I'm drinking cup after cup of cold coffee because I keep forgetting to drink my coffee because I'm sticking to the last five chapters of the book. I I really like the way you were able to build that up, even though the obvious storyline is going down. Dulles just finds himself more and more wrapped up in, can I get this done? You know, what's the future of the OSS? What's my future? And he's just trying to show the validity of what he can do, even though he's a, I don't know, is, is he a maverick? Is he a cowboy? Does he, he just, he hates rules. He doesn't want anybody looking over his shoulder and he likes the danger and he likes the drama. We'll get into all that, but I just really like the way you were able to, to just ratchet it up as the book goes on. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, the, I mean, not to get our head of ourselves and get to the end of the war, but, you know, there was a lot of tension in how the whole thing went and would unfold. And the, uh, the Soviets were convinced that the Brits and the Americans were going to team up against them. You know, Stalin was terrified of that happening throughout the whole war. Uh, um, so there, there was great tension, and Hitler was really banking on it till the very end. He thought he might be able to drive a wedge between the, the allies, between the Soviets and the Western allies, and um, so, but really, you know, right to the bitter end, there was hopes on the German side that maybe they could uh, they could wreck the alliance and maybe save themselves. Absolutely, Hitler was right. It just happened, unfortunately for him. After, well, good for us, but uh, after the war's over, so there was a breakdown. So he he pegged it right. Just the timing uh, couldn't save him. So let, let's just jump into this. So. Um, when, um, you know, we have Pearl Harbor and then America's into the war, we decide that we're going to liberate Europe first and then go after the Pacific. However, because of the, 
isolationist policies in between the wars. It's not like America has this vast espionage network set up in Europe. We don't know much about what's going on in Germany. We certainly don't don't know much about a resistance within Germany to get rid of Hitler. So if you could kind of paint us a picture of Alan Dulles before November of 1942 when he makes his way to Switzerland and what kind of guy he was. And then we'll talk about him literally going there and then just hitting the ground running because he was that type of person. Yeah, he definitely was. Dulles was really, he was born to a pretty patrician family. Uh, two relatives had been Secretary of State, and mm-hmm. his uh, his grandfather, John Foster, who was Secretary of State to Harrison, really kind of took Alan Dulles and his older brother, of course, John Foster Dulles, who later became Secretary of State, under his wing. And, you know, there's great family stories of all of them kind of at this family compound in upstate New York in Henderson Harbor. And, you know, the boys got to meet, um, you know, really important dignitaries. So there's one great story of when Alan was young, he went down and he was hanging out with his grandpa in Washington and was listening to the grown-ups talking about the Boer War. Mm-hmm. And so he took it upon himself and he wrote a little book, actually, um, Alan did as a kid about the Boer War. Wow. And his grandfather was so impressed with the whole thing that he had the book published um, with the spelling mistakes and everything. <laughs> and the Washington Post actually wrote a review of that. Um, wow. So not surprisingly, um, Alan entered the State Department and did a tour in Europe and was in Turkey. Um, he had been an international lawyer at uh, Sullivan and Cromwell on Wall Street. So all this really kind of, for me, painted the picture of somebody who wasn't your typical spy. Um, he was raised in this background of tremendous ambition and kind of an ability to look at things from 30,000 feet. Um, so when World War II broke out and William Donovan recruited him, he'd, they'd known each other from Wall Street days a little bit uh, and recruited him to go to work for the um, OSS. It was uh, it was really kind of a different um, animal that uh, that Donovan was signing on to, and there was kind of some tension between Donovan and Dulles. You know, as I said, Dulles was very ambitious, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure that he was too jazzed about uh, you know working for somebody else. And there's a great story of when um, uh, Dulles was in New York before he went to Switzerland, and he was having a meeting with Donovan at the St. Regis Hotel, and he went up to his room opened the door and there were secret papers spread all over the room and the bed. And apparently Donovan was in the bathroom or something, but he didn't lock the door. And so uh, Della scooped up these papers, went down to the lobby and phoned Donovan and said, you know, I have a question about those secret papers. Can you find those for me? I wonder. (laughs) And uh, Donovan was not too thrilled about that. Uh, Della's got a real kick out of it. Um, So, I think there was a, a big part of Donovan who was happy to get uh, <laughs> to get Dallas out of his hair and off in far off Switzerland. And that and that's the amazing thing. Everybody has to rem- remember one of the main rules of reading or writing history is that you don't, you should not judge people by today's standards. It doesn't work. It was a different time. They were different people with different worldviews. And so I'm reading about Dulles from your book. And I mean, this guy's the American James Bond. He doesn't, he doesn't like rules. He's got tons of cash. He's, even though he's got a, a wife that he loves and he even calls her an angel in your book. I mean, he, he's a playboy because I think I read in your book something like it was just this mentality. That's one of the benefits of being, I mean, as we say in the United States, he was born on third base and there was just a world that was, <laughs> that was just open to him. You know, it, it was just uh-huh. a part of the privilege of uh, being born into that social elite. 
It, but you're, you're absolutely right. And I've thought about that quite a bit too, judging these historical figures, you know, from the forties in this case and applying sort of modern, and, and I don't want to excuse a lot yeah, of what absolutely. he did because um, it was bad in the, in the day too, but it's, it seems especially bad now. And it's always kind of a tricky thing um, to judge them, you know, morally or, um, you know, judge what they did. So I don't know. That that was that was something I was very aware of throughout the book, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like whenever I'm reading him talking, I think it was to Bancroft, he's pretty much just telling her, look, w- let's work together. And hey, wh- while we're working together and you're cute, why don't we go and have, have a relationship? I can hear the James <laughs> Bond theme music in my head in the background. He, he was just a player. So so it, I, I found it interesting. The, the funny yeah. I was going to say the funny thing about that, uh, sorry to interrupt, yeah. was that that uh, Bancroft was at first uh, not too thrilled about uh, Della. She thought that he was a bit of a dinosaur, actually, right. when they first met. And, you know, he, she seemed to him to be somebody, you know, from a different generation. And she was used to, uh, you know, she was a little bit of a swinger herself. And she kind of liked uh, younger people. And mm-hmm. I remember in, in one scene, um, she was explaining to him um, something about the, the homosexual laws in Germany, <laughs> and right. Dulles really had no clue about you know what the whole thing was, and she had to explain it to him, and he got all embarrassed. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah, he, he he was definitely old world, but yeah, but, yeah. But you make the point in the book. I mean, uh, you touch on it. There's a point in the book where you're like, you know, when you have, I mean, when you have war. And when you have total war, world war, the norms the, that society functions on breaks down. So here's this young woman where she's much, you know, she's younger than him. I think there was a decent age gap between the two. But for her, life was about, um, life was a different set of rules, and it was pretty much about having fun and surviving because you don't know how long you're going to be here. So, yeah, she, she sees this older guy, but he was successful. He was rich, athletic, good-looking or whatever. But um, for her she was used to a much different crowd because, you know, he's an American. They haven't been bombed. They haven't dealt with all the suffering, but, but for her, you, you just really get the sense about who do you think you are, but he does win her over in the end to, to a degree. Yeah. Um, as I said, uh, she was a little bit uh, skeptical at first, but I think she had always, you know, even as a young girl, she had expressed an interest and a fascination in espionage. And mm-hmm. so Dulles came along and he was telling stories of what he wanted to do. And that kind of helped win her over. And, uh, and, and Bancroft was, you know, she was, she was used to dealing with men and she right. let it be known around Switzerland, uh, you know, and her friends, she kind of carried on a bit of a shocking lifestyle. She was divorced. Um, she had married an American figure skating champion, but left him for what she said was a purely a physical attraction to someone else. It was kind of funny. <laughs> the, the, the mom of the guy that she was going to run away with went to Bancroft and said, would you just leave my son alone? You're too much for him. <laughs> and so you could do that I think back it was pretty, then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so she ended up, um, this is another sort of interesting little vignette about Bancroft. Um, she met this uh, Swiss businessman, and that's how she ended up in Switzerland. She uh, she didn't love him, and he was definitely not her type. He was, you know, frankly, I think a bit boring. Mm-hmm. But he concocted the story that he was part Turkish, ah. and and this really appealed to Bancroft's sort of sense of adventure and danger. And um, so she went ahead and married him. And then, you know, I think later he said, you know, by the way, I don't have a drop of Turkish blood in. Me. <laughs> so um, sorry, you know. So when she, yeah, sorry, you know, <laughs> a little lost leader there. So. <laughs> 
You know, I think when she was in Switzerland and especially after that revelation, she was, you know, she was meeting, meeting people and, you know, one of her, um, one of her buddies that, or somebody who she came to know fairly well in Switzerland was the psychiatrist Carl Jung, um, who she met. She had developed a sort of sneezing affliction and, um, yeah. that Jung learned had, was brought on by socially awkward situations and, <laughs> He was able to cure her of that. And I think she developed a little bit of a crush on Jung. And, you know, she said that uh, I think she called him one hell of an attractive guy. So, you know, so the two in some ways were, you know, they were two ships that were (laughs) destined to meet each other, I think. Right. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. Now, speaking of adventure, so Alan Dulles, November of 1942, his job is to, you know, get some information because when you have an enemy, you have to learn about them so you can learn to defeat them. But like like I said earlier, there, there's no massive network uh, on the ground. There's no list of contacts you can just go. So he's got to go to uh, Switzerland, the only place left in Europe you can possibly go to, even though that's not completely safe, obviously. And he's got to start from scratch. But like you were saying earlier, because of his personality, I mean, he loved this. He read in this no rules, you can't really trust anybody, you're trying to get information from someone without giving information. I mean, and after this time is over with, he's going to spend the rest of his life, you know, reminiscing about this. So if you could just give us an idea, he gets to Switzerland, and everybody, and everybody I guess, thinks that he's the conduit to FDR, they, the British don't take him very seriously, but he is there to do a job and to have fun, and he pursues both with a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he definitely, even though he had just a very little bit of experience in intelligence gathering from his mm-hmm. work in the State Department earlier in his career, but he was like a little kid. You know, he loved all of the spy craft and the scheming and the stories. And when he arrived in Switzerland, he had a, he had a few contacts with them from his days in at Sullivan and Cromwell in the State Department. But he was really ambitious and he really wanted to get it cranked up as quickly as possible. So he basically bragged everybody in Switzerland. Uh, um, as you said, kind of his cover was that he was, um, his original cover was that he was going to be a special advisor, a special assistant to the American head of mission. Right. And then there was a newspaper article about him, just a little one in a French newspaper in Switzerland that erroneously said that he was there to work, you know, as a emissary for Roosevelt. And, and Dulles was at first kind of horrified about that, and then he realized, well, maybe this will be my new cover. <laughs> you know, everybody <laughs> thinks this is my secret cover, so let's just go with that. Um, so what he did kind of to begin with was essentially he attempted to buy intelligence. And as I was saying, he, he bragged to everybody about how much money he had, and the Brits got kind of annoyed. Um, there was a British agent in Geneva, and the British had never been ones for purchasing intelligence. They thought it was... You got kind of suspect information that way. Uh, um, One of the British agents said, you know, basically Dulles hung a sign on his door that said, information for purchase here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The other thing that Dulles did was he, and this is very unorthodox, unorthodox, but he just made a habit of meeting everybody who came along. Uh, um, 
you know, he didn't screen people very well at all. And it was partly because during uh, World War One, when he was in the State Department, he had been alone in the American mission one Sunday afternoon, and he had a, a tennis date that afternoon with an attractive young lady. And the phone rang. It was somebody who said, I really have to talk to an American diplomat. And Dallas said, you know, no, thanks. I'm out of here. <laughs> Call date. us on Monday. <laughs> yeah, I got a date, and she's pretty good looking. So, and it turned out that the guy who called was Vladimir Lenin. Oh my God. And Dulles was really, he really took that to heart. And, right. you know, we don't know what Lennon wanted to talk about, but Still. it was obviously a missed opportunity. And so when Dulles was around Switzerland, he, you know, really believed, I've got to meet everybody. Yeah. And, you know, actually, it served him in good stead. The British were much more discriminating, and they turned away some good informants who ended up in Dulles's orbit. Yeah. So I like the idea is in, in, uh, in Bern, in Switzerland. There's no every secret is every secret is open. Everybody knows why they're there or whatever that kind of stuff. So there's no harm in talking to everybody as long as you don't show your hand. So I mean, at the very least, he can start to get his feet on the ground, learn learn who, learn who the main players are. Uh, give us an idea of some of the people that he's going to meet uh, during his time there. One of the um, first characters that he met, and, and really. Probably the one that became America's most important source of intelligence during the entire war mm-hmm. was a guy named Fritz Kolbe, um, who was really, you wouldn't really figure that he would have much to deliver. He wasn't, uh, Dulles actually wrote, he didn't look very smart. Um, he was kind of short in stature and he was a little bit meek. Um, and he was essentially a clerk or had a very low-level position in the uh, German foreign ministry. Right. But his job enabled him to read dispatches from the branches of the German military who were, that were being passed on to the, the foreign ministry, kind of a heads up, here's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And Kolber realized that those were really important, or could be really important if uh, you know, the Americans or the British got their hands on him. So he started coming in on Sundays, and he would just take notes in his almost unintelligible handwriting uh, um, of all these top-secret documents. And his problem was he didn't have anybody to give them to. Wow. <laughs> um, he was sitting on a gold mine, but he didn't know where, you know, how to capitalize on it. So he had a friend in Switzerland who originally reached out to the Brits um, who said, no thanks. They, they'd heard a story like this once before and had lost a couple of agents, and so I guess you can't blame them. Sure. Um and so they, he ended up uh, meeting Dulles um, in a very, that must have been a very tense um, meeting. It was at midnight, and everybody was kind of using code names. And um, Kolba offered intelligence about German codes. He revealed that the Germans were operating an agent in Ireland. And one of the coolest things was he pulled out a map, or he actually drew a map on the spot, mm-hmm. of the Fuhrer's eastern headquarters um, that showed where, you know, where Hitler lived and the movie theater and the railroad tracks. And, and uh, um, so it was really cool. And Dulles was really suspicious at first because mm-hmm. people just don't walk in off the street and say, hey, here's, here's some stuff. And, and, <laughs> and he didn't even ask for money. Um, yeah. So Dulles was convinced it was probably some sort of trick, and you know everybody knew that uh, that you know Dulles was there, and he looked like a rookie and a greenhorn, and I'm sure the Germans you know could have thought, boy, this guy is going to be an easy <laughs> an easy right. mark, uh, um, and it took him quite a while uh, um, first for Dulles to be become convinced about Kolba, and then 
for the for the OSS back in Washington and the Brits were skeptical and and jealous, quite frankly, right. uh, for a long time. Uh, um, so that was kind of the one key figure. Uh, the other was uh, a German named Hans Bernd Gesabius, and this kind of became, uh, or Gesabius kind of became Dulles's main contact with the German underground. Mm-hmm. Gesabius had risen through German uh, security and intelligence or uh, police forces. He was an early member of the Gestapo, mm-hmm. and uh, he was very ambitious and conniving and arrogant and, and he decided at one point when he was in the Gestapo that it would help his career if he spread a rumor that the head of the Gestapo was a communist. Ooh. Well, it didn't really work out very well for him because when the head of the Gestapo found out, he got chucked. And he was actually lucky that, that he wasn't thrown in prison, but right. he was kicked out of the Gestapo. And he ended up landing a job in the Abwehr, which was the intelligence arm of the German military. And uh, Gesevius kind of very quickly became opposed to the Nazis around this time. Uh, mm-hmm. um, he had seen how nasty they were from his work in the Gestapo. And also, you know, I'm just totally surmising this, but I really get the feeling that he was kind of frustrated the way his career had gone, and he kind of wanted to get some revenge on the people who had kind of blunted his ambitions. Sure. And the, the Abwehr sent him to Switzerland, where um, he began to reach out uh, first to the British, and then um, he became a really important uh, contact uh, for, for Dulles and, as I said, a link to what was going on in Germany. But, you know, once again, there was a lot of uh, suspicion and worry about uh, Gazavius. Um There's one little story, if uh, I can indulge a little bit. Sure. He was, he was talking with Dulles. It was about their second or, or third meeting, and... They were sitting around in Dulles's uh, office, which was also kind of his apartment in the old quarter of, uh, of Bayern in the capital. And, and uh, Gazavius pulled out this little black notebook, mm-hmm. and he began to read word for word uh, top-secret American transmission out of Switzerland to Washington. Wow. And Dulles was gobsmacked. You know, there was no way that the Germans should have been able to intercept it, let alone break the code. Um, and there was some pretty sensitive information in it uh, mm-hmm. um, that actually had cost somebody um, their job. And uh, Dulles was really impressed. Uh, when you can read somebody's mail, that's not uh, a secret that you give away unless uh, there's you know some important, something important about it. Right. So from that point on, Dulles began to really trust uh, Gazavius, and they worked uh, quite closely, really, through the end of the war after that. Well, let me ask about Colt. Koba. Um, so he didn't ask for money. So why was he bringing this incredible information to them? And why was the second gentleman bringing information? Was it, it sounded like for the second gentleman, uh, Gasavius, if I'm saying his name right, that it might have been mm-hmm. personal or whatever, but was the first guy just against the uh, Nazis as well? Kolba, uh, yeah, was opposed to the Nazis. He had, as a youth, he'd been um, a member of a youth group called the Von der Vogel, which was um, you know, kind of, kind of like the Boy Scouts, but there was a lot of sort of morality about it and ethics. And he just uh, never, he never joined the Nazi party and he remained opposed to them, you know, throughout, throughout his whole life and throughout the war. Right. Uh, um, he also was opposed to communism and he was worried about uh, what the Soviets might do after the war. Um, so, you know, he really wanted to work with the Americans and the British. And also, I think definitely with Kolba, um, that he had a real hunger for adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And he loved, as the relationship with Dulles evolved, he loved the little spy craft and they would send postcards to each other with, you know, really obscure, you know, like I went skiing and, and jumped successfully three times. And that meant that, you know, I got your three messages or something. Wow. Um, and even he devised his own code, um, which, <laughs> which he tested out on um, some code <laughs> people at the foreign ministry in his own office. Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah, that's a really good code. <laughs> and so he, he started using that to communicate with uh, Dulles. And, and, you know, by the end of the war, he was pulling together all sorts of grandiose plans um, to help the Allies invade Germany. And I think he wanted to be something more than just a spy. Um, and after the war, I think he thought he might be able to land a pretty senior job in a new German foreign ministry. And he seemed like he was positioning himself for that a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I think he just loved the, you know, the adventure of, of the whole thing. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Well, and you make two very interesting points. One, you've got to watch the quiet guys. Uh, but two, I mean, the Germans can be uh, the superior race all they want, but they need functionaries. And these functionaries have access to all this information. And so you can you can do whatever you want, but eventually these, this information is going to end up in the, uh, in the hands of the lower ranks who have to file it away or whatever. And if you don't treat them very well, or if you're not, you know, they're humane or whatever, and you, you upset the wrong people. A lot of people can have their own reasons for betraying you. And it just sounds like the yeah. Nazis, obviously the Nazis uh, upset a lot of people. And there were, I don't think um, here in the West, the America, uh, uh, we Americans appreciate just how many people were against the Nazis, um, either in their minds or their hearts. And like, like these gentlemen actually took some action, but how, how do you stand up to the state, to a state that has all the guns that has all the power and is quite frankly, not afraid to use it against you against yeah. their own people. You know, and there were some people who um, who resigned their positions in protests. Uh, Ludwig mm-hmm. Beck, who was chief of staff of the German army up until 1938, and, and he resigned when uh, he, he had supported Hitler early on, as a lot of these guys did, because, you know, they were pretty unhappy about the way that Germany had been treated after World War One and the Versailles Treaty, and Hitler promised to undo that. And so, you know, there was a... They supported him quite mm-hmm. widely, but once they saw what kind of person he was, a lot of them began to fall off. And so Beck resigned in 1938 uh, when he learned about Hitler's plans to uh, invade Czechoslovakia and you know liberate the Sudetenlands, and mm-hmm. you know we kind of know that story. Uh, and and so he joined. Uh, he went to work in the resistance um, from that point as someone who was not really part of the government. But there were others, and probably the most compelling figure I think is. Wilhelm Canaris, who was head of the Abwehr, which was the military, uh, the intelligence arm of the German military, and he had turned against Hitler and really kind of turned uh, key sections of the Abwehr into little hotbeds right. of people who were opposed to the Nazis. I mean, it was remarkable that here we are in the center of Berlin, and you know, one of the most important bodies and you know, very important intelligence arm. And there are senior people throughout who are actively spending all of their time right. plotting ways to bring Hitler down. And 
Canaris protected them and, and did what he could. So, um, uh, several of those guys got caught and, and Canaris actually, the war didn't end well for him. Uh, um, he was implicated in some of these plots and he was executed before the war ended. Right. Uh, um, it, that's, it's a sad, it's a sad story. So many of these guys, um, did not survive the, the Gestapo and the domestic police in Germany and the SS. And, um, they, they knew their business and you could, you could plot and scheme for a while, but the deck was really stacked against you. It was, you know, some of the stories of the survivors are pretty miraculous, but it was, it was, you didn't have a long lifespan um, in this occupation. So, so speaking of some of the resistance, uh, give us an idea of some, maybe the earlier plots to get rid of Hitler, Hitler, get rid of Hitler. Cause I remember reading at first, some people were thinking, well, we don't want to kill the guy. That seems a little extreme. We just want to remove him from office. But I imagine there were those who wanted to remove and those who wanted to get rid of him permanently, but just give us an idea of what maybe some of the earlier attempts to remove this, mm-hmm. to remove this guy. Um, probably the first major attempt, and there had been people, you know, when Hitler, I think he became chancellor in 1933 and Fuhrer and, you know, which is a special title that was created in that, you know, the following year. Right. And there were people who were opposed to him and kind of individuals, uh, um, uh, a lot of them communists because of Hitler's stance against uh, communism. Mm-hmm. The kind of the first major um, attempt came in 1938. And, you know, this was, Beck was a big figure in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so what he, what he did at that time, Hitler was, was working on these plans for Czechoslovakia and Beck and a group of people thought that this would really kind of tilt the German military against Hitler. Right. Um, so he reached out to a number of people and they developed plans of fairly good plans to orchestrate a coup, um, and at this point, people really didn't know how bad Hitler was. It was 1938, um, and they were worried that assassinating him, you know, could maybe start some sort of civil war. You know, that right. Hitler was at that point in time was not as bad a figure as, as he would later become. Mm-hmm. So there was just they just wanted to arrest him. So they were uh, they had really a well developed plan to. Um, orchestrate a coup once Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia and they, a number of generals thought that that might start a war and they with, with England. And uh, um, so they wanted to prevent that and with England and France. And, and so they began to, uh, you know, they hatched this plot and they reached out to the British and they said, we're going to do this. But of course, Chamberlain was uh, uh, very nervous about what Hitler was doing. And so Chamberlain, as, as we know, the, the Munich Agreement in 1938 and appeasement. And, and it was a shame because the underground and the resistance had put together a pretty good plan to um, pull off a coup and, and depose Hitler. Um, they were really despondent when the British went ahead with that because at that point, the German public uh, was pretty satisfied, you know, what Hitler had done. He seemed like a great diplomat and kind of the wind went out of their sails uh, um, for, for deposing uh, Hitler at that point. Uh, um, But there was, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's like, okay, we're going to do this. We need to know what you other countries are going to do, how you're, how you're going to react, how you're going to support us, because that's, you know, nothing that happens in a vacuum and uh, we need to know. And so when they don't get the support they need, I mean, that you're like you're absolutely right. It takes the wind out of your sails. And what are we supposed to do now? The the people are starting to like him, or they don't know how bad he is, and we can't get assurances from other countries. So it's almost a suicide mission. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the following year, I mean, this is, you know, just uh, the, the story of a lone individual, and he's kind of one of my favorite characters in the book, uh, Georg Elser, mm-hmm. who was a communist, and um, he had a lot of carpentry skills, and he got a job at a construction factory, so he was able to get his hands on some dynamite, and he had a very inventive mind, and he developed a timer for a bomb that was incredibly sophisticated. Wow. And he knew that Hitler was going to give a speech um, uh, in November in a particular beer hall. So Elser began sneaking into the beer hall at night and he would wait in the bathroom till it cleared out mm-hmm. and all the employees went home. And then he would go and uh, made a place to hide his bomb in a, in a pillar. He cut a little hole in the pillar and put a little door over it oh, okay. and did this over a series of nights. Uh, um, and uh, it just shows Hitler was incredibly able to avoid assassination and coup time and again. And on this particular evening, everything was set. The bomb was placed, but there was bad weather and Hitler was going to fly back to Berlin. um, And because of the weather, he had to take the train and leave early. Mm. The bomb went off exactly on schedule and killed a bunch of people. It would have killed Hitler if he was there. Uh, um, And uh, Elser ended up getting picked up um, at the uh, border. He was trying to get into Switzerland with directions about how to make a bomb in his oh, pocket. <laughs> no. you, you'd want to get rid of that stuff yeah. as quickly as possible. So I mentioned that story just because time and again, Hitler avoided these, you know, really well thought out and, and you know, really good coup attempts or assassination attempts. It was uncanny. Mm-hmm. And, and, but then you, there comes the other part. I mean, Hitler, he's about to start World War II and then he just has a string of victories. And, you know, there's Poland, there's there's Denmark, there's Norway, and then there's the, the Low Countries, and then there's France. And you've got to be thinking, the people, they might not like war, but, hey, they're winning. They haven't lost yet. But then comes Russia, then comes all the, the horrible things that happened in Russia. And around the time of Stalingrad, you uh, make a point in your book that there was a much bigger plot to go after him. Because that was, they, mm-hmm. they've, they've suffered so much since then. How could the people not be on their side? That was kind of um, the occasion of probably the next big coup attempt. And as you said, it was after Stalingrad and the disaster when the Sixth Army was lost. And it really was on Hitler's hands. You know, he had directed a lot of that battle, and it was hard to point the finger at anybody else but Hitler. And it was really interesting because, as you said, up to that point, uh, um, Hitler and, and the German army were on a roll. Uh, but after that defeat, there was a lot of grumbling around Germany. There was um, there was one resistance group in Munich, uh, uh, the White Rose, that um, was basically some college kids. And after that defeat, they spread some materials around the campus, and several of them ended up getting caught. So Sophie Scholl, um, who was a biology student, a number of others were beheaded. Um, there was a good movie made about that. But um, the generals, and particularly on the Eastern Front, and a lot of the generals who were opposed to Hitler came from the Eastern Front because they had seen how terrible it was, the, the Einsatzgruppen that roamed around, you know, rounding up Jews and right. anybody else and just, you know, the mass murders. And that really didn't sit well with a lot of senior officers. Um, 
So they, they, several of them devised a plan in March of uh, 1943 where they were going to blow up Hitler's plane. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, the two officers were Henning von Tresco and Fabian von Schlaverndorf. And they, they got Hitler out to the Eastern Front where he was interviewing his troops. Mm-hmm. And they had, uh, once again, they had put together a, a really cool uh, bomb. Um, it was disguised to look like um, a couple of bottles of Cointreau. Uh-huh. And they they asked a German officer who was traveling with Hitler to, you know, take the, um, you know, this back to Berlin with them. They said they needed to, uh, to settle a bet with somebody, a friendly wager. Mm-hmm. And so they got the bombs on the plane with a fuse that was, I think it was set for half an hour. And it was a highly reliable fuse, a highly reliable bomb. Right. And uh, they sat around uh, listening to the radio, and they were sure that Hitler's plane was going to be blown from the sky. Mm. And they could not believe it when they heard that Hitler had safely landed. Oh. Um, one of them had to rush to uh, <laughs> rush to catch up with the bomb before anybody figured out what it was. Uh, and they were able to retrieve it right. um, and and get rid of it. So what uh, happened? Um, the, and, I think they, there was a lot of debate about that. They mm-hmm. kind of later thought that the bomb had been placed in a cargo hold on the plane. Right. And the cargo hold had a heater on it normally, but on this particular occasion, there was some speculation that the heater malfunctioned, and so the cargo hold was cold, and then maybe that had interfered with the fuse. Oh. Um, and Because they tested the fuse afterwards, and it seemed to, uh, it seemed to work. Uh, you know, but once again, by his breath, you know, he, uh, he meant. And then a few days later, they still kind of had the coup plan in place, and they thought, well, maybe we can still enact it. And the German officer stepped forward in a suicide mission, right. and so he took those bombs and strapped them to himself with a 10-minute fuse, and Hitler was going to give a tour, he's we're going to take a tour right. of some captured German armaments. And so this officer, the plan was that he was going to strap these under his clothes, set the fuse, and then go position himself as close to Hitler as possible and blow himself and Hitler up. Wow. So that they, uh, uh, he was able to see Hitler, and he got close to him and remained right next to him <laughs> throughout this tour. And you can just imagine this bomb strapped to you, yeah. knowing it's going to go off in just you know minutes. And Hitler, for some reason, decided uh, he he had to leave, and he took off, you know, well before the tour was supposed to have ended. And this poor guy was like, oh, my word, what do I do now? And so he rushed into a bathroom and was able to defuse the bomb before it went off. Um, But, uh, you know, once again, Hitler dodged... uh, you know, the proverbial bullet. I would have aged a hundred years in those 10 minutes. Oh my God. I'm sure he did too. But so again, so Hitler escapes again. Now, and this is the part in your book. Well, first of all, let me go back to something when you were talking about the officers and the generals in the East who, who want to remove Hitler. You make a very good point in your book about these are men of honor and battle is one thing, you know, you take on the enemy, but what, what is happening behind the enemy lines has nothing to do with honor, what they're doing to the Jews and any other resistors. So this, this certainly rubs these very honorable uh, men the wrong way, but and you make a very good point in your book, they took an oath not only to, I guess, the German state, the Nazi state, but they took an oath to Hitler personally. So it must have been very hard for them to square themselves with this oath they took, but also removing this monster who was going to bring about the destruction of their country. 
And that was a constant problem when they went, you know, the people who had joined the coup attempts uh, um, and were looking for additional recruits. And that was a constant problem. And you wonder if, I guess, if you wanted to be um, uncharitable, you could say that the, that the officers were hiding behind that, sure. uh, that oath and was, you know, was saying, well, you know, I've gave this pledge, but I think it really was for many a, you know, a, a kind of just a test of their manhood. They said it, they took it very seriously. Uh, um, and also, you know, the, one thing that I kind of came across in doing the research is a lot of the generals, you know, really felt responsible for their troops. Uh, um, you know, they wanted to end the war, but they didn't want to be seen as traitors either. Right. Um, and they didn't want to put their men at risk. And, you know, even after the war ended, some of the people who had plotted against Hitler and when that when their involvement came out after the war, they were not welcome um, around Germany because, right. you know, people and it's, you know, it's natural, I guess, at some human level of their um, sons and fathers were getting killed. And here was somebody who was working with the allies. And even though yeah. Hitler was a monster, but, you know, he also contributed to, um, you know, family members getting killed. So that, you know, it was a real sort of tricky balancing act for a lot of them. Yeah. And that was one of the things, not to jump ahead, but I really enjoyed about the end of the book, finding out what happened to some of these people. Yeah. And they had to deal with the consequences of their action, even though they had their reasons for doing it. So getting back to um, getting back to Dulles for a second. So he's finding out about the German resistance. He's gathering information. And then suddenly in Casablanca, FDR makes his life a whole lot harder. <laughs> just the idea of just trying to help the resistors, much less actually, you know, help them succeed. But uh, tell us a little bit about FDRs. And I still cannot figure this out because even Churchill seemed to be surprised. If you can just give us an yeah. idea of how FDR thwarted some of his own men. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, what you're referring to was a meeting that, Cas that uh, Churchill and Roosevelt had in Casablanca in um, a very early 1943. Mm -hmm. And they had talked, apparently, it's a matter of some historical debate, but right. apparently while they were there, they had talked about the idea of unconditional surrender, but it seemed to have, they didn't really reach any um, agreements about it or any final decisions or so, Churchill thought. And the two of them were giving a press conference, and kind of out of nowhere, um, Roosevelt departed from script and said, oh, by the way, we are going to insist on the unconditional surrender of the Axis countries. And Churchill was a bit alarmed by that. You know, there was, it kind of sounds obvious, but there was a lot of implications for what that might mean going forward. Right. Uh, um, and it did make life very difficult uh, for Dulles, the the main, the main thing that the resistance and the German underground wanted from him was a promise that Germany be, would be well treated after the war. You know, if, if these guys were going to risk their necks in getting rid of Hitler, they wanted to make sure that that the country would be, you know, kept intact and wouldn't be wouldn't end up like after World War One. And uh, Dulles was not able to offer that promise because of uh, Roosevelt's Casablanca uh, declaration. And Della spent, you know, the rest of the war spent or sending, you know, new message after new message pleading, you know, will you just soften it a little bit, get, you know, throw these guys a bone there. Right. You know, they really want to help out and they want to get rid of Hitler, but you know, we got to, we got to give them something to believe in. And Roosevelt really dug in his heels. And there were a lot of people who were, who were opposed to 
his unconditional surrender um, demand, and, and including uh, Churchill and um, key members, the, the head of the OSS, William Donovan, I think, was opposed. There were um, you know, key members of the American military, mm-hmm. and, and kind of their thinking was that it would really help the uh, kind of German propaganda, and it, and it did. Uh, right. Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister, made a lot of hay with this, um, you know, we've got to fight to the bitter end because there is no cutting a deal with the Americans. They are gonna, they are gonna really nail us. So, might as well just die on the battlefield. Yeah, and um, and that was a constant refrain from Dulles that uh, you know you've given the Germans something to fight for with this unconditional demand. Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Yeah, because it said with just one little sentence, it becomes all or nothing. And no one's going to choose nothing. Mm. That's just not the way it is. Uh, you, you make a point in your book, uh, if you could drill down on it for us a little bit about, I was trying to figure out, um, were the resistors in Germany not taken seriously by the West, or was it maybe Dulles wasn't taken seriously by some of his leaders, or maybe was it a combination of both? Because here, you know, you you, you would think Dulles is bringing them the this this information. It can't get any better. Hey, there's some people who want to resist. They need our help. We just we just got to help them along the way. And the, you know, if you could put the unconditional surrender aside for a second, I'm just trying to figure out why they just weren't taken that seriously by those that mattered back in Washington. Yeah, I think I think partly Roosevelt. I think the that William Donovan and the OSS they were interested in working with them. Right. Roosevelt really had no interest. He wanted to pursue the war to to the bitter end and. Working in the resistance, it kind of came, you know made that unconditional uh, surrender demand. Maybe would call that into question. Hmm. And there was some suspicion about how trustworthy they were, and you know Dulles, for all of his background, he was one guy in Switzerland, um, and people really weren't sure how seriously they could take his, you know, whether they could believe what he was saying. And he actually had a lot of difficulties early on in his assignments. He right. he reported things back to Washington that were, that were wrong, um, you know, kind of, you know, made some wild, some, you know, he missed the mark by a wide margin on, on some things, um, which really undercut him. At one point he got a message and this was early on. He got a message back from the OSS that said, uh, just by the way, the war department is discounting by 100% okay. the information that you're sending. Um, so that didn't leave him in a very good stead. You know, he, you know, to be fair to him, those were early days and he yeah. made some mistakes. Uh, um, and he definitely got, you know, he righted the ship later on, but at the, at the end of the day, it was one guy um, saying these things and, uh, the Americans were just, you know, we don't really quite believe it, and we're not quite sure what they would do anyway. And even if they succeeded in eliminating Hitler, there's just going to be chaos. And what is that going to mean for the war? And you know, they really believed in the battle plan that they had uh, um, for defeating Hitler on Germany, and you know, with uh, with uh, you know, putting a real punctuation mark on it. And you know, Roosevelt had seen how it had been after World War One, and, um, you know, how messy that peace treaty was. And he, he didn't want to have another negotiated uh, agreement that, you know, maybe would leave a lot of the 
sort of German war machine intact. And it was just, you know, you, once again, as we were talking earlier, you need to put yourself in the mindset of those times. And, you know, Germany had, um, in their view, been responsible for World War One. There had been a lot of fighting in the 1870s. And, you know, Germany at that time was seen as just, you know, a real bad egg. And, right. You know, there was some of the discussions about what to do with Germany after the war, where, you know, that it had to be broken up. And, you know, Henry Morgenthau, the Treasury Secretary, wanted to reduce it basically to an agricultural, right. you know, a group of farmers. Um, so I think they just wanted to eliminate the, the German military threat once and for all. Yeah, and you certainly can't fault them for that. So. So getting to the other bombshell of your book that I really liked. Um, so so Germany, the resistors aren't getting v- very well, uh, getting getting very far along with the, as far as Washington and the decisions being made. And I was sh- kind of shocked um, about the degree, and, and this is where I want you to weigh in, the degree of some in Germany going, well, if the United States is going to be like this, maybe we can find some way to end the war with Russia. You know, we'll keep some mm-hmm. territory, you get some territory, but maybe we should actually turn to the the, comp- the country that we're fighting, work out something with them, and we'll end the war on our own. You know, obviously, we'll get rid of Hitler, but we'll still be a very powerful Germany if we can make peace with Stalin. Because, you know, I mean, he certainly doesn't want the uh, the war to continue because at this point, Russia is still suffering a lot. I was just amazed about there was talk of turning to Russia and turning away from the from the West. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, I I didn't really appreciate that either until I was doing the research, and it, and it makes sense when you put yourself in that time. Mm-hmm. The the Germans and the Soviets after World War One, the, the Soviets hadn't come out of World War One in very good stead either. I mean, you might remember that the U.S. actually sent troops right <laughs> to uh, uh, you know to the to Russia in 1918, and so. There was kind of this commonality between the two of them, um, you know, that the West were was decadent um, and hadn't treated us very well. Um, so that they kind of had that background. In fact, I think parts of the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, were trained um, in the Soviet Union during the war. I mean, I mean, I mean, before the war. So. Right. Uh, um, and the sort of the political background in Germany was certainly, you know, there was a leftist element to it. So it wasn't that much of a stretch, uh, um, although Hitler hated the communists and, you know, they were blamed, the, the Nazis blamed the communists for a lot of what had happened uh, um, between the wars and, you know, causing a lot of difficulty. Right. There were a, a lot of people, you know, spread throughout the German government who, uh, um, had some good feelings towards them, and of course there was the you know the unbelievable uh, non-aggression pact, uh, the Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, agreement from I think it was 1939 to 1941. So there was there was some background between the two, um, and particularly as Germany got farther and farther into uh, Russia, um, you know as it was you know pushing eastward. Uh, there were some in Germany, and when the U.S. entered the war, um, and Himmler was among them who kind of thought, you know, with the Americans and that economy coming, and maybe we should just kind of do a deal with the Soviets now. We've got a lot of territory, and there were there were kind of low-level talks, peace feelers between representatives, you know, or kind of representatives of representatives, I'd say. Right. Uh, between um, the German government and the uh, Soviet government. And it's kind of hard to say how serious it was. There was a lot of dancing back and forth. Uh, um, but it was something 
as you said, the underground and that uh, underground members who Dulles had contact with, and they were more than happy to feed that information to him because they thought it would kind of maybe tilt the U.S. more towards aiding them. Um, there was a, a group that they talked about a lot, the Free Germany Committee, mm-hmm. um, which was made up of uh, German officers who had been captured at Stalingrad. And, you know, it, for kind of the, the military historian buffs among uh, your listeners, you know, we all have the pictures of the German army being marched off into the frozen tundra at the end of Stalingrad, and very few of them ever returned. But a number of officers, a couple hundred, were selected, and they were put on trains and sent to very nice POW camps um, elsewhere in the Soviet Union, and, you know, where they had libraries and sports facilities, and the Soviets began to recruit them to, um, you know, for kind of a propaganda campaign. And they produced a newspaper that they dropped over German troops, kind of encouraging them to surrender. But there was a lot of suspicion um, among members of the resistance and among the uh, among some Americans and British even that those officers were also being trained to kind of form uh, sort of a shadow government yeah. um, that the Soviets could install as soon as the war was over. Um, in fact, some of those people did um, receive fairly senior jobs in the East German government. Uh, um, so all those things sort of played on Dulles's imagination, and um, he reported them to Washington where, you know, they received varying degrees of, uh, of acceptance. Um, but it was, for the resistance, it was a very strong and compelling uh, card to play with the Americans. Wow. And, and just a side note before we go on, you have to admire something about Stalin, who's in a life or death struggle, and he's lost millions of men, you know, millions of uh, Russian POWs, but he's also at the same time making a contingency plan in case he survives, in case he, he wins, to not only keep Russia, but to maybe to be able to control Germany through these uh, German officers. So again, it takes a certain amount of uh, brass on uh, uh, from Stalin to be able to think that far ahead. You have to admire that kind of, you know, I'd hate yeah, to play yeah. chess against him. And, you know, the Americans kind of, they flirted with the idea of putting, I can't remember the name of it just offhand, but putting together a, a group similar to the Free Germany Committee, kind of an American response. Uh, and it really didn't go anywhere. They were afraid that when the Soviets found out about it, that it might be seen as kind of a provocative uh, move. And also, I mean, there was one document that I read that was pretty interesting where they admitted, we don't think we can do this that well, you know, and putting together, you know, the one thing they, they hadn't captured as many people as the Soviets had, as many right. Germans. Uh, um, but they just thought we, I don't, you know, they thought, well, the American government really can't keep up with the Soviets on this score. Um, so it was something that we never really engaged in. Right. Um, yeah, but you got to give. Stalin, from the very beginning, was looking three steps ahead in, in you know, as you put it, the chess match. And you don't get the same sense that the Americans in that Roosevelt were. They were, you know, focused on, on you know, they were so transfixed and focused on winning the war on the battlefield that, you know, the planning for the post-war environment, it, uh, it took a long time to get going. And when it did, it was it was not very clear and you know, Roosevelt was determined to, you know, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but Roosevelt was determined to make friends with Stalin, and he really thought the U.S. could work well with the Soviet Union after the war, and he would find this sort of commonality of interests, and 
you know, he had great hopes for the United Nations. That was kind of the big dream that the Soviets and Americans would be the two big boys in the United Nations. Um, so that was kind of his post-war plan. But, you know, I think Stalin was more realistic. And, and um, you know, as I said, he was just kind of always thinking a couple moves ahead. Yeah. So, so 1942 goes by, we get into 1943. The good news is the war is starting to turn. That's all good. But now Dulles, with all of his contacts, is really starting to to be apprehensive about Soviet Russia, about being a partner with Soviet Russia, and about the future of Europe after the war, that it looks like the Allies are going to win. So his fear of Stalin and what Stalin's capable of is, is starting to grow as he's getting more information. And that and that really kind of drove him more and more into um, into the camp of the um, German resistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, as that fear grew, uh, um, he was, you know, as I said, he was just more and more convinced that the Germans were uh, the German underground. It was a group that we had to embrace and had to work with. And you know, as as we get into 1944, and he's starting to pick up some of the planning um, that. The resistance is making for Operation Valkyrie, um, right. what became the July 20, 1944 attack on Hitler. You can see Dulles's mess- messages to Washington really become kind of more and more um, desperate almost. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he tells Washington that, you know, they can save American lives if, if right. they succeed in this. Uh, and we have to, we have to give them some help. And he was just not getting any of it. And, at one point, the German resistance went to um, went to Dulles and said, "You know, we'll we'll even help you invade Berlin. Um, wow. We know a number of German officers, generals will lay down their weapons, and if you want to uh, mount an aerial invasion on Berlin, you know, we'll help you do that." And uh, I, I don't think Dulles even took that seriously. Um, you know, it was, you know, once again, you couldn't go to Washington and say, these people that you've never heard of are, have, <laughs> you know, formulated this huge plan of attack, and all you have to do is this. I mean, it, you know, obviously it was yeah. going to be a non-starter. Um, but, you know, just walking up in, in July 1944, Dulles was learning more and more about what was about to happen, and he was warning Washington about it. Uh, um, but you can just really sense the frustration from him. At one point he said, I don't even know what our policy is. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, just before that, uh, that attempt was made on Hitler's life. Yeah, and that's staggering. So, uh, so, and uh, I'll, I'll let you cover uh, something else. And uh, I just want to mention something, and then we'll kind of get close to wrapping this up. So, obviously, uh, Italy is the soft underbelly that Churchill spoke of. Uh, Italy is invaded. Mussolini falls. Um, uh, if you want to talk about Valkyrie a little bit, I just want to mention real quick. Um, with the chances of the Americans, or excuse me, the powers in the West. Um, trying to help the German resistance, that certainly, any chance of that is certainly dashed after the Battle, Battle of the Bulge, because here we are, we're thinking about helping you, and then you launch this massive offensive or whatever. But if, but um, So that just wasn't going to happen. So if you could maybe speak a little bit about the question of Northern Italy or Valkyrie, and, and then we'll just kind of wrap it up with, um, and finally getting a glimpse that maybe after all, Himmler was a good guy because he tries to certainly, uh, <laughs> he certainly tries to mm-hmm. uh, reinvent his image as he knows the war is going to come to an end. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as you said, after um, Operation Valkyrie and the failure, you know, thousands of people were rounded up around Germany and, um, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, were executed. Mm-hmm. And Dulles lost a lot of his network um, in that uh, bloodletting. And Gazavius, who he had worked with so closely, he'd been in 
in Berlin at the time of the coup attempts, and he went missing. Nobody knew where he was. Mm. And it was really kind of a dark period for Dulles personally. And, you know, people who were close to him, uh, Mary Bancroft, talk about how the light kind of just went out for him. But that was revived a little bit in very, well, in quite dramatic fashion, actually, in early 1945, when Dulles was at home um, one morning um, in Bern, he received a call from a friend of his who was in Swiss intelligence and said, you're never going to believe who's in Switzerland right now, and he wants to see you. And that was Carl Wolf, who was the SS general, and he was in charge of the entire SS force in Italy. Wow. And Dulles really couldn't believe it at first. Um, Wolf actually, he was on a train <laughs> um, that was passing through the mountains, and an avalanche came and wiped out the railroad tracks. And Wolf, who had uh, reserved cars on the train so that he could uh, <laughs> slip into Switzerland without being noticed, was forced to get out and trudge through the snow and ride into uh, Zurich with everybody else. Wow. But he met Dulles in an OSS safe house in, uh, in Zurich that evening. And he had a pretty amazing uh, story. He said that he was ready to surrender all of uh, the SS troops in Italy and also that he was pals with um, Albert Kesselring, uh, field marshal who was in charge of the German army. And he said, you know, I think that I can convince Kesselring to surrender his men. And I mean, that was staggering. That was a million men that were being put on the table for, for Dulles. There's also, you know, just to, you know, diverge slightly for a moment, Mm -hmm. it had probably even bigger implications for what was, uh, you know, probably the biggest American fear at the end of the war. And that was that the German army or the remnants of it would somehow be able to make it to the Alps and the mountains of Austria and Italy Uh. and burrow in. And there was all kinds of intelligence that they were digging tunnels and moving factories and stockpiling food, and they put together a commando unit that they called the Werewolves, which I think is a wonderful name for a commando (laughs) unit. And the Americans were terrified about Uh, this, and they had some estimates that they could prolong the war, the Germans could, by two years if they were able to, to burrow in into the mountains. And they were, the Americans were determined to prevent it from happening. As it would turn out, it was almost entirely wrong. Oh. Um, Goebbels had uh, been able to fan um, American fears about this, and there was nothing like the, uh, 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 you know, the flight towards the Alps that the Americans um, thought might be happening. But mm-hmm. anyway, they were convinced that it was, and if they could prevent this uh, Italian army, the German army in Italy, from reaching the, the Alps, that had to be taken. Right. And so um, uh, Dulles decided to pursue that, and he told uh, you know his bosses about it and went straight up to Roosevelt, who was delighted. But unfortunately for him, uh, Stalin found out about it. Mm-hmm. And for Stalin, this was kind of terrifying developments. Um, Stalin had, you know, had spent a lot of the war really worried that the Brits and the Americans would somehow team up with the Germans mm-hmm. and all three of them would turn against him. And, you know, he kind of, as the you know, communist uh, uh, member of, you know, of the war, he thought, oh, I'm kind of the odd man out right. and these capitalists and the Germans are going to, you know, inevitably they're going to come out to get me. And when he heard what Dulles was doing, he thought, okay, this is, I knew this was coming. And, so there really were a series of bitter, bitter exchanges between Roosevelt and Stalin over uh, these talks that Dulles entered into. Um, 
it turned out uh, Wolf actually it, his what he was doing was discovered, right. and he was uh, he actually had to go explain himself to Hitler in a very terrifying wow. uh, a very terrifying meeting in the Fuhrer bunker up in Berlin. But uh, he was able to uh, get out of it, and they were able to arrange a, a surrender that uh, took place on on May second. Uh, um, you know, it was only about five days before the war itself ended, um, Still. but. I think, and it's still, a lot of good came out of it. I think Wolf was on his best behavior, and uh, Hitler had ordered that a lot of Italian artifacts and, and factories be destroyed, and you know, none of that happened, I think, because these talks were taking place. Um, and, you know, as you talked about with Himmler, Dulles was receiving a lot of these sort of peace feelers late in the war, and some of them were from people who had kind of connections to Himmler. And, you know, when you say about Himmler, you know, that's one of the, maybe the ultimate war criminal. And right. it's just astounding how in the latter part of the war, how um, he thought that maybe he could rehabilitate his reputation. Um, and I, it also shows that Himmler really he knew how bad yeah. <laughs> he was, um, that, he, that he had to take, he probably didn't know how bad he was, but he knew that he was in some pretty serious trouble. Yeah. And so he reached out to the Swedes and kind of arranged for some uh, POW, uh, Swedish Red Cross, I should say, mm-hmm. for um, uh, POWs to be uh, treated better. And he incredibly, he arranged for some Jews to be um, uh, gotten to right. safety. Yeah. Um, actually, I mean, he received some money for it, but... Sure. Um, you know, he was he was doing things like that to um, kind of make himself um, look a little bit better in the eyes of the allies. And, you know, it was, of course, it was a lost cause. He was, if he was caught, he was going to be the first one yeah. to meet a hangman's uh, uh, noose. And he actually, at the end of the war, he kind of tried to hide himself as a, uh, as an enlisted man and was finally got caught. But, um it was incredible the you know all the, the peace feelers that he put out to various people and you know was desperately trying to leverage whatever power he could um, into saving his own neck. Wow! And and just to let the listeners know, the whole, whole thing with General Wolf and Operation Sunrise, uh, you go into really uh, great detail about that, and that was one of my favorite parts of the book. Uh, but then everybody on the Allied side gets um, horrific news. Uh, FDR, obviously, uh, not too long after uh, Toyota, uh, passes away. And uh, and then as bad as that is for the Allied cause, because for some people, I mean, he's, he's been president four times. He's the only president a lot of people could possibly remember. But then, the, I guess, the political infighting with the OSS uh, comes back to haunt all of those people, especially Dulles, while he's in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, you know, uh, Roosevelt created the OSS, uh, um, and he was kind of the, de- the defender of it. But it was a very, it, there were a lot of people, and there was quite, who didn't like the OSS and the FBI and people in, um, you know, members of the military intelligence. It was a very sort of controversial organization. And, you know, I think a lot of it was just uh, rivalry and power grabbing um, and because Donovan and Roosevelt had uh, had a decent relationship, uh, you know, Roosevelt was kind of the protector of it. And mm-hmm. as the war wound down, there was the in the uh, intensity of the attacks on the OSS, you know, from within the American government, really heated up. And the, the OSS had done some; there had been some really impressive accomplishments, but there were some other things that maybe, and particularly in Asia, hadn't accomplished quite as much. 
So there were a lot of people who had their knives out for it. And there was a study that was done about the OSS that I think probably was uh, um, somewhat biased. Some key um, members of the American Army played roles in that. And and, um, Edgar Hoover um, was able to get his opinions out in this report. And Mm -hmm. so Donovan could see that the OSS was in a bit of trouble, and he proposed and was kind of working on a new intelligence service to replace the OSS. Ah. And and, uh, Roosevelt was considering what to do, and he was, at this point, he was becoming more and more sick, and Donovan knew that the clock was ticking, um, you know, on Roosevelt and the future of the OSS, and when Roosevelt died, uh, Donovan was actually in Paris. He was at the Ritz Hotel, and he was just distraught when he heard about the president, uh, um, you know, partly because of, uh, you know, he knew him quite well, obviously, and there was that relationship, but also what it meant for the OSS, which was disbanded uh, um, in the fall of 1945, and some parts of it were, were you know, hived off into the State Department, and but OSS offices around the world um, were drastically cut back, and it kind of began a period of sort of soul-searching in the U.S. about what to do and, um, you know, in terms of forming a, a new intelligence service, which, of course, eventually became the CIA. Um, but there was definitely a period right after the war where uh, – U.S. really didn't have a, an effective overall intelligence gathering service. And, of course, this was when the Soviets were, you know, they were wasting no time getting set up in in East Germany and had designs, you know, through the strength of communist parties in Western European countries and Italy and in France. And, and we really do, we had always lacked good intelligence about what was going on in the Soviet Union during the war. You know, they were our ally mm-hmm. and didn't have, we weren't supposed to be spying on him. So it was a, uh, it was a difficult time. Actually, you know, one of uh, um, somebody who Dulles met uh, um, Reinhard Galen, who was a member of the German um, uh, military intelligence uh, um, actually ended up working with the Americans after the war and um, kind of went back to Germany and helped, uh, helped set up uh, the American intelligence service in Germany. Wow. And, and believe it or not, for our listeners, we are not, we haven't finished the book and we certainly haven't finished the story. Dulles will be back. And then you've got the entire Cold War and, and everything that goes on where America has to catch up very quickly with all the amazing spy work and political maneuverings of Stalin because he is, he is justifiably paranoid about what the Western powers may do. I mean, America came out of this much stronger, obviously. We we weren't bombed, and now we've got 92% of the world's gold, and uh, Americans sitting pretty, so Stalin is going to do whatever he can to offset the economic might of the United States. Um, so if it's okay with you, Mr. Miller, I want to leave something for the uh, for the uh, listeners to read to, but again, we haven't finished sure. it off, and uh, just an absolute corker of a read. Everybody should check it out, and obviously, uh, Mr. Miller's other work, but Again, this book is Agent 110, An American Spymaster and the German Resistance in World War II. Mr. Miller, thank you very much because just a corker of a read. I really enjoyed the, the week and a half that I spent going through this, and I learned a lot. And if I can say, that's, that's saying something. Well, great. It was, uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for having me on. Sure. So everybody checking out. I mean, oh, also, even though your publisher sent me uh, a paper copy, I certainly appreciate that. It is also available on Audible. Uh, I listened to that as well, just so I could really be ready for this. And that, and that was uh, 
presented very well. So again, everybody check it out. You can, obviously, there's lots of different places you can find it. And Mr. Miller, thank you. And next time you write a book, I'm hoping you pick up where you left off with Dulles, but that's just my personal uh, wish. Uh, we can have you back on the show. That would be great. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much. And as always, for everybody, take care. Greetings from Central Virginia. Uh, Just one more thing before I let you go. When you get a moment, please go to podcast.study and take a quick survey for me. I'm trying to get more sponsors for the show to, you know, justify to the wife all this time that I'm spending. Again, that's podcast.study. Please do it as soon as you can. I need about a thousand of you to do this. So again, just take a couple of minutes when you can, and I would really appreciate it. So show me some love, people. So I've helped you with your shaving. I've helped you with your home-cooked meals. Who knows what else I can bring onto the show. But again, I would really appreciate it if you could do this for me. Take care, everyone. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the... The weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.